turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. Thank you for that birthday present on Thursday past. It was my 19th birthday as a believer, and it marks the fact that I have now, every day that passes, I am now longer a Christian than I was an unbeliever. I was saved at 19 on the 13th of May, 2002, and so now 19 years have passed, and I thank the Lord for His mercy, how good He has been. And we remember the pit from whence we've been digged, and how merciful, how kind. And in the providence of the Lord, we come to a passage that deals very much with the mercy of the Lord. And I trust the Lord will help us as we give consideration. We've come to Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 51. Maybe you're here tonight and your chains are still about you. You're unregenerate, you're unsaved, your sins are not forgiven. You know nothing of the joy of the Lord, of what it is to rise, go forth and follow Christ and make Him Lord of your life. That's the prayer of our hearts, that you will know the real power of regenerating grace, of sins forgiven, of a life that now has meaning and significance not because of anything we accomplish, but because of our Lord Jesus and what He has done for us, redeeming us, bringing us into the fold, saving our never-dying souls. So let us read the Word of God from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Let us all give heed to the Scriptures, and may it be received in faith and with profit. Luke 9, verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Amen. May the Lord ever help us to appreciate His inspired Word. Let us bow together in prayer and seek the Lord again. Pray for your own heart and your own reception of the Word this evening. Lord, what a precious thing it is to know what Thou hast done for us and to be able to proclaim it. When we sing, Jesus saves, it's because we know it by experience. And we praise Thee for many here tonight that have been unshackled because of what Christ has done. He has stepped in the glorious Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Yes, that moment when there was faith to believe. Oh, we bless Thee for life, for salvation. God, strengthen our faith. Make us love Thee more. Let us grow in grace and in our knowledge of Christ. May our appreciation of Him ever sweeten and deepen. May we love Him with every ounce of her being. I pray especially for perhaps younger people that have been brought up in the church and they don't realize what it's like to be totally lost. They don't realize what it's like to be in a world with no one even telling you about the Lord Jesus, with no preaching, no ministry, no Sunday school teachers, no loved ones that are reaching out, no one praying for you. Lord, help them to realize the innumerable 
unquantifiable benefits and blessings that they enjoy. And may they close in with Christ and love Him with all of their hearts. So be merciful then. We pray for others, whatever their state, whatever their condition, even this night, show mercy. Show mercy to souls. Save them. This is thy work to do. So may chains be removed. May the devil be defeated. May souls be freed. And another, even many others, brought into the kingdom this night. Hear prayer and be with us and give us much of the Holy Ghost in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I indicated this morning, beloved, we have come to a pivotal point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, as he records the record of the Lord Jesus' ministry, as he pulls together all the details, as he accumulates the history, as he endeavors to bring everything together, he does it in a very orderly fashion. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following, we have our Lord Jesus uh, being introduced in terms of his Galilean ministry. And that's really where we've been now for, for a long, long time. I'm not sure how many months or years it may have been since we've gotten that far from Luke 4 to where we are now. But this has really been a focus, the Galilean ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are turning to a transition, a transition from the Galilean ministry to the, we might say, a relatively slow march of our Lord Jesus towards Jerusalem Luke chapter 9 verse 51 tells us it came to pass when the time was come. And without getting into it, that's almost like equates to the language of John when he speaks often in his gospel of the hour not yet being come, and the hour not yet being come, and then the hour was come. It's this moment in time, it's this, uh, this movement towards a particular objective where our Lord Jesus would lay down his life, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. It's after this event when the Lord Jesus will begin to make his way. Very evidently, even at this point, he is starting to go toward Jerusalem, but there are many things that have to transpire. In fact, I'm not even sure whether when it says he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, that that, of course, is pointing to something because uh, Luke makes it very clear it was the time when he should be received up, which has this sense of redemptive significance. It's a certain event. We'll get to that in due course. But when you have the Samaritans recognizing that he is going to Jerusalem, it seems like Luke, and I, I just put this out really as a suggestion, it seems like Luke is actually mixing two things here in terms of the ultimate objective of Christ going to Jerusalem as well as the immediate objective of going towards Jerusalem. You're coming to a point here when you pull all the Gospels together, where really when you, you try to figure out what happens after this event, after these verses, is all told by John. So if you were to try and follow the kind of chronological ministry of Jesus Christ after verse 56, you would be going over to John chapter 7. And John chapter 7 brings us to the event where our Lord Jesus is, is actually encouraged by his half-brothers to make his way to Jerusalem and I've dealt with that before, but I'll not go into any detail now. But eventually he does. He goes to Jerusalem. He's there for the Feast of Tabernacles. There is various discussion that unfolds in the temple. It brings us into John chapter 8 where he says, I am the light of the world. And again, there's more discussion. There's more debate. Some believe. And there's a desire to arrest him. But never man spake like this man. There's, there's, there's a recognition there's something going on with this man. And he, he, he lifts up his voice even on that last day of the feast at the end of John chapter 7. And he says, if any man thirst, let him come on to me and drink. And he moves very swiftly from, the, from, from that to as he leaves the temple, then you have this blind man. And you know the healing of the blind man and then his subsequent excommunication because he, he, he recognizes something has happened though he doesn't know the details and he's removed from the synagogue. He's cast out. He's able to say, all I know is whereas once I was blind, now I see. And the Lord Jesus then comes to him again. He recognizes who he is. He's saved. And then it comes into John chapter 10, where our Lord Jesus then is actually dealing with something of prophetic significance in terms of the fact that these religious leaders had been mistreating the flock of God. And instead of looking to these false shepherds, they need to look to the good shepherd who giveth his life for the sheep. So all of that really transpires after verse 56. And then he comes out of Jerusalem again and carries on a period of ministry before his return 
where eventually then he will lay down his life in the ultimate fashion that we know too well. Tonight then, I want us to deal with what I've entitled Christ's purpose to save lives. Christ's purpose to save lives. You see it very evidently in verse 56, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I want us to see, first of all, as we consider these verses, His purpose is met with discrimination. His purpose is met with discrimination. Look at verse 52, where it tells us that He sent messengers before His face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for Him. And they did not receive Him because His face was as though He would go to Jerusalem. There's a very practical aspect of the Lord's ministry here where we're told that certain messengers were sent to make ready for Him. We're told at the end of verse 52. This was not a day where you had huge hotels where you could just turn up and there would be Hilton Hotel over here and some other hotel over there, and if they don't have room, then they will have room. You had to prepare. And with a crowd as large as went along with the Lord Jesus Christ, it was only courteous for them to to go ahead, send messengers and say, we're on our way. Is there any room and board? Is there any place for us to stay? We're willing to pay, uh, but is there anywhere for us to stay? And so it's a very practical aspect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, something uh, very often overlooked. And it brought to mind again the fact that in the ministry of God's Word and in the, the, the call that the Lord brings to us, there are those that are essential to the work that perhaps are not engaged in that which is most visible. They're not always preaching. They don't have perhaps some focal point of ministry, but they have practical things to do. Messengers of the Lord. Messengers that are used by God in very essential aspects. We ought never to denigrate, never show lack of appreciation for those that are messengers that are sent forward to do very practical things. The work would not go on. The congregation of the Lord would look very bleak and sad if there were not individuals who would practically apply themselves to various aspects of the Lord's work. So we're very thankful for those that the Lord has blessed in this place and thankful for the reminder even in this text that there were certain ones to make ready for Him. That's what they're doing. They're making ready for Him. They're not preaching Him at this point. They're just making ready for Him. That's something that all of us can do. In some way, make ready for Christ. Make ready for the going forth of His Word. Make ready, perhaps, for someone else to bring the Word, for someone else to minister. There's something for you to do in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And every last one of us is gifted in various ways. It's just a matter of praying before the Lord and applying ourselves that we might make ready for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom and the glory of His name. But as we consider that His purpose was met with discrimination here in these verses, I want you to note with me, first of all, that it is an ancient discrimination. The discrimination we find in these verses is ancient. We are brought to consider Christ coming into Samaria, dealing with the Samaritans, And this is the first time in Luke's gospel. It's not the first time in his ministry, but it's the first time in Luke's gospel. There will be a couple of other occasions where Samaritans will be named. Uh, One of them is a parable, Luke chapter 10, where we have the Good Samaritan. And then the other, I think, is Luke chapter 17, where we have a miracle. And it's the healing of the lepers. And it was the one who comes back with gratitude for the Lord Jesus. We're told he was a Samaritan. So those are the other occasions where Luke will identify the fact that there are certain individuals that were Samaritans. But here we have coming in our Lord Jesus to this place of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. You remember in John chapter 4, if you're not familiar, you should turn there and at least make a mental note of that passage to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. But the woman said there on that occasion at the well in John 4, 9, how is it, speaking to Christ, how is it that thou, being a Jew, Ask us drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She is taken aback. She is surprised that he will have any dealings with her. Not just because he's male and she's female, but because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. So there's great tension between these groups of people. If you were to go back to Second Kings chapter 17, you will see something of the history of this relationship and what was going on. I'll read a couple of verses for you, but it would 
It would be good for you to go to 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 and following, and read those verses and endeavor to understand them. But we're told in verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuta and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So these people are brought into this northern area and they're planted there. They're not from there. They're not Jewish. They're from these other nations and they're placed there. And if you read on through that chapter, for example, in verse 32 and 33 and the last verse, there are actually a certain theme that comes out in relation to these verses. Verse 32 says, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. So it's very interesting the way the Spirit of God records it. They fear the Lord. It's not a redemptive fear, but there's, there's something of their acknowledgement of the true God. But then they pull in this false practice of making of them, of the lowest of them, priests. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. And then the last verse, verse 41, so these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images. It's a kind of strange way to put it. They feared the Lord, but they serve these false gods. They have these false priests and so on and so forth. But this is, a, this is a syncretism that's taking place. It's an amalgamation of religion, of taking from the truth and taking from error and trying to marry them and saying, this, this is our religion. And this continues for centuries so that when those of the southern kingdom return from captivity, the mixed nations of Samaria offer to help the Jews as we read in Ezra chapter 4. And in Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, it says, They came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. And then we read, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. So again, you have the men of God preserving, seeking to draw a line. And in fact, it actually builds upon what we were considering this morning, doesn't it? That when it comes to the truth, when it comes to the essence of the gospel, what it is to be reconciled with God, there can be no compromise. There can be no holding of hands. These individuals are coming down and saying, hey, we'll help you. We worship the same God. We offer sacrifices to the same God. And discerning the reality, they say, no way, no way. We have nothing to do with you. And of course, it's not an ethnic discrimination at this point. At this point, it's a religious discrimination. It's a recognition. You don't know the gospel. You don't know God. And so they can't join hands together. And as time goes on, the Samaritans then begin to hate the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. There is this ongoing tension and schism between them. And Christ was unambiguous when he again, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman of Samaria, he tells her in John 4, 22, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. He is drawing a line. Your religion isn't the true religion. You say you know something of the same God, but you do not. It's the same idea of believing that all Abrahamic religions worship the same God. They don't. They don't. Jesus Christ would make this plain in John chapter 8. If you really knew the Father, you would know me. But you don't. You don't know God. So when Christ sends the messengers to communicate their intentions... To stay in the area, the Samaritans resist. Verse 52, he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, and they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. He's going to a place where they will have no dealings with such individuals who 
are tied into Jerusalem, have a love for Jerusalem, worship at Jerusalem. They have no time for it. They lost out. Their discrimination makes them lose out. There's a title of our Lord in the Old Testament, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And they missed out on an opportunity of Jehovah Shammah. Beloved, this is the most important thing in this very place. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. His presence is there. And if there's one thing these Samaritans needed more than anything else, it was the presence of Christ in their midst. Here he is willing to come by, to stand in their midst, to minister to them. And they will not have him. They reject him. And what we understand from this is that there is an inseparable link between rejection of the truth and rejection of the messengers of truth. Christ would bring the truth. Christ would speak the truth. And so their rejection of the message meant that they reject the man bringing the message. Be very careful. It's an age-old problem. Having issue with the messenger. And saying that you have an issue with the messenger... Because that's more subjective. You can say it's because of his personality or because of her manner or because of this, that, and the other. It's all subjective. You can persuade people that that's the reason. I don't like the person or I have an issue with the person, but be very careful. We're actually doing often what we argue for is a rejection of the message. These Samaritans think and portray they're rejecting, rejecting people, men, Christ. But it was actually going back the century-old, the century-old rejection of the truth. You know, also, it was a revived discrimination. Not only an ancient discrimination, it was revived. And with this, I can't be absolutely dogmatic, but I am inclined to believe that the success of Christ's ministry in John chapter 4 may have spread... There may have at least in part been influential, at least in some minds. It doesn't say this in the text, and really the argument given is the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, he's heading that way, that's why we're rejecting him. But it may, it may have been in part also what had happened. Just whether it is or not, I think it's good for us to go to John chapter 4 and just see what the Lord did there on that occasion. As he met with the woman, and as he spoke to her and addressed her, She is powerfully influenced. Verse 28 tells us, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Look at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. So there's the power of your testimony. You say you're not a preacher, you have a testimony. She wasn't a preacher. <laughs> she wasn't seminary trained. She didn't have a long theological uh, training of evangelism. She didn't go to a 10-week apologetics course. But she knew what to testify. She knew what to say about what she had experienced. Christian, go out and say it. Speak your testimony. Share what Christ has done for you. Use it even in the language of the hymn we sang just before we began to look at the Word. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose and... I can't remember now. It's gone for me. But use it as a testimony. That's, that is the Christian's testimony. Is, it is recognizing what the Lord has done for you. Many of our hymns are really that. It's just the testimony of what the Lord has done for us. And you know, you know the hymns. You're familiar with it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is your testimony. 
And with the empowerment of the Spirit of God can do amazing things without all the convoluted arguments for the existence of God or any other argument you may think, think is important. So we read on, verse 40, So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Many more believed because of his own word. So they come, they believe. Verse 42, And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this indeed, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now that had to have been spreading. This I don't know what size of a crowd were influenced, but it was spreading. There were many that were influenced and many that appeared to be converted at this point. And it may have, in some additional fashion, led to a reviving of the discrimination. The disciples, remember, went into that city of Samaria. That's where Christ sent them. And they went there to get bread, to get meat. They weren't turned away. They weren't rejected. But it is a reminder of the fact that, that perhaps with this mighty move of the Spirit of God, there were the religious leaders who felt threatened, felt intimidated. And then they're hearing about Him coming their way. And there's this revived discrimination against Him. Secondly then, we not only note that his purpose is met with discrimination, but his purpose is met with disregard. Also with disregard, going back to Luke chapter 9, this time looking at verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias or Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Note here that James and John disregard, first of all, the extent of their commission. They disregard the extent of their commission. It is sad when God's people possess a spirit that they have learned from the world. The antagonism shown here by James and John isn't all that out of the ordinary for Jews, especially in light of what had just happened. And if you lived in a kind of environment where there was strong discrimination against a certain subsection of society, you would understand this. It doesn't take much to inflame that animosity. And as you well know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I saw this. You see how easy it is to inflame antagonism toward another subsection of the community or another community altogether. Be careful about such biases. Be careful about such inbred ways of thinking about people that it's all you've ever known. It's what you've seen growing up. It's what you've borne witness to and you adopt it and you think this is the normal, acceptable way of thinking about these people. Be extremely careful. Of course, Christians have a way of defending their biases with Scripture. They have a wonderful way of finding some portion of the Word of God to justify their feelings which is exactly what happens here. Their mind turns to an event involving Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1. And Isaiah has sent men to go to the prophet that accounts for us these two groups of Ahaziah's men, Ahaziah was the uh, son of Ahab, more famous to most of you, I'm sure. And he's reading from Samaria, so actually this may have been what helped trigger the memory, because they're in the region of Samaria, and hey, Elijah was in this region, and, and when he had a problem with some Samaritans, he called down fire. Ahaziah's men came to get him, and he called down fire. Two groups of 50 went up in smoke. 
So here they are arguing from Scripture. Lord, what vow that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? Seems so appropriate, seems so fitting, seems so scriptural, so biblical. Let me just say, I mentioned this on Friday evening with the family fellowship. We were talking a little about principle-based raising of our children and using principles. So you have a certain principle and then you have a proof text for it. And you establish all these various principles for raising a family. And you imagine to yourself that because you follow all the principles, everything will turn out fine. But that's not how it works. God doesn't bless using His Word like some kind of academic textbook where you can find certain principles and then say, here's what we're trying to do and just apply it to whatever scenario you think is fitting. It's not the gospel. It's not pointing people to Christ. It's not the call to make much of him. And it ends up that you do things like this. You do things like James and John here. Hey, we're taking Scripture and we're applying it to the scenario. Mimicking Elijah. How godly we are. Use of Scripture does not prove that something is biblical. Underline that. Get that into your head. Use of Scripture does not guarantee that something is biblical. Without getting bogged down into a comparison of the events between Elijah and what's going on here, suffice to say that Elijah had a ministry of representing both the salvation and the judgment of God. His ministry reflected both. Sometimes he brought life. Sometimes he brought help and salvation. And his ministry and miracles were used to the saving of souls. Other times it was judgment. He was given such a mixed ministry. That's the calling of God upon his life. But that is not what had been given to the disciples. Go back to the beginning of the chapter, Luke chapter 9. Here we see their disregard of the extent of their commission. Luke 9 verse 1, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Christ gave them a very clear delineation of the mandate. Preach, heal, cast out demons. If you're not received, shake off the dust of your feet and walk away. There is no calling, no commission to call fire down from heaven. There's no commission of judgment except the shaking the dust off their feet, which was a form of judgment. It was a form of expressing that they were looking at them as unbelievers. They were treating them like Gentiles, like those outside. That was sufficient at this time. But James and John are not satisfied by this. James and John are like so many others that the Lord will give us very clearly what He wants us to do, but then we find something else to do that He has not prescribed. Take, for example, a very large SBC congregation in the past few days that have decided to ordain women to ministry. What are they doing? It doesn't matter how clear Scripture is. It doesn't matter. They're adding to it. They think, we want this ministry as well. Lord, wilt thou not? Give us this. Let us have that. And Scripture forbids it. It's not within the realm of what the Lord has called them to do. But we can do this in all sorts of ways. All sorts of ways. We can disregard the plain teaching of Scripture, the clear call of God upon our lives, and 
And imagine that we're being godly in doing so. They didn't even say to the Lord to do it. They wanted to do it. Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Bless God for unanswered prayer. Sometimes we ask for really stupid things and thank the Lord he doesn't answer as we have requested. Maybe that's something you haven't thanked the Lord for in some time. Thank you, Lord, for the prayers you have not answered. The silly things we imagine are good for us. This is what's best for me. This is what I would like. This is what would help. This is what would extend the kingdom, so on and so forth. Christ regulates his church and his people by his word. Don't seek for a ministry Christ has not called you to. I was tempted to get into a side issue of the regulative principle of worship because I think there's an application here. Why we believe that what we do in the house of God isn't just making sure that it has been forbidden or as, as the Scripture doesn't speak against it, If Scripture doesn't speak against it, then we can do whatever we like. No, we believe that what we do in the house of God has to be prescribed by Scripture. Many, of course, believe that as long as they can't find something that says they're not allowed to do it, then they can do whatever they want. They have a full-on party. Do whatever you like. Have pizza and Coca-Cola for communion. Yes, that has happened. Just make it up as you go along. Do whatever you like. The Bible doesn't say it's, it's wrong or it's sinful, so... Can you imagine for a moment that should our Lord have been treated at this juncture in Jerusalem this way, that they would have responded in the same way? Going into Jerusalem or some area, area territory around Judea, and he's rejected in this fashion, that their response would be call down fire from heaven. And what's amazing, of course, is that rather than bringing judgment upon the Samaritans, the Lord Jesus is going to repeatedly deal with the judgment that's going to come upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem specifically. And we'll get to various portions in the coming chapters where he will deal with us. So James and John disregard the extent of their commission. They just toss aside at this moment. They're not content with what calling God had given to them. But also James and John disregard the call to be merciful. They disregard the call to be merciful. When they say this, verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. And what's he getting at? What's what's wrong with their spirit? Well, it's a lack of mercy. There's no mercy in this. Remember Luke 6.36? Seems a long time ago now. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. That is our call. Be merciful. Be merciful. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And this unmerciful spirit is extremely dangerous. I was reading the other day in Proverbs 11, verse 17. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. There's so much application there. In the interests of self-preservation, be merciful. This can be tied into so many scriptures, even in relation to forgiveness. Because if you can't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. The whole call to forgiveness is actually in the interests 
of self-preservation. Forgive. And so it is here in this text. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul. He that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Remember that. Remember that. It is so much application. So much damage has been done because people will not be merciful. Think of Psalm 103, verse 8 and following. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. We, we love this. I mean, this is honey to the soul, isn't it? That this is our God. We gather here tonight not to, to appease the, the judgment and wrath of God by our own efforts, but knowing that He has been merciful, so merciful that He has provided a full, a full salvation through His Son. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous of mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Yes, James and John, remember that. What you have received, what you have experienced at the hands of God is not the Lord rewarding you after your sins or according to your iniquities. But for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. When you're not sure, err, side of mercy. There are times for judgment. There are times for discipline. Times for a straight word. And there will come a time of ultimate judgment where the merciful Lord and the mediator of the elect will be appointed as judge of the whole earth and will without hesitation pronounce judgment upon the unbelieving. Parents, be merciful to your children, to your spouse, to fellow believers, to the lost and the perishing. Thirdly, his purpose is fulfilled by determination. It is fulfilled by determination. And there are two things to note here. That Christ's determination is motivated by the prospect of his ascension to the Father. His determination, first of all, is motivated by the prospect of his ascension to the Father. Look at verse 51. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. As I say, there may be a distinction here between, or at least a, a kind of mingling of ideas. Because the received up is a clear indication of the ascension. It's calling us to think of that ultimate act of the Lord. What's interesting, of course, is as the Lord has been dealing with this, if you go back to verse 22, just to refresh your memory, as He's been dealing with this aspect of why he's going, what he must endure, what he must experience, what the plan of God is. Luke 9, 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So you have various aspects of his redemptive work there. Verse 44 then deals also, in addition to that, with the betrayal of Judas. He shall be delivered into the hands of men, as well as the wickedness of the men that were involved with that. But predominantly Judas is in view there. But in verse 51, then we get another aspect, his ascension, his ascension. Now, we don't deal much with the ascension of Christ. We don't preach it much. It doesn't come up. And that's, that's to a great detriment. It is worth pondering, beloved. And it's worth pondering even as you think of this passage, because as you have this whole kind of scene presented before you and a transition of the ministry of Christ as he prepares for the ultimate objective for why he came his mind is upon, he's considering, it is this aspect that is in view, him being received up, looking beyond the betrayal 
and beyond the suffering, and beyond the crucifixion, and beyond the wrath of God, and beyond the tomb. He sees him being ascended up to the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 1, this ascension is dealt with. It's, it's not the same word as you have here for received up, but it's similar. In verses 2, 11, and 22, referencing the ascension of Christ. You also have it in 1 Timothy three sixteen. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. But this is the point. Due to his knowledge of his ascension to the Father, Christ determines to go to Jerusalem. He sees that. It is motivating him. It is moving his heart. In fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 50. I think there's an allusion here and and at least one other place that we'll turn to. Isaiah chapter 50. Let's read from verse 4. Isaiah 50 verse 4. You can see the messianic language here. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. What a wonderful ministry Christ has to our souls. Let me just say as an aside to the weary soul tonight, you need a word from the Lord. Give time to let the Lord speak to your heart. Some of the Lord's people have a relationship with Christ that's like a bad marriage where you may have something you want to say, but the person won't hold still for five minutes to let you talk to them. And we run about so busy. And the Lord has a word for you. He sees your weary soul. He has a word for you. Be still. Sit down. Take a rest. And receive from Christ His precious word. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious neither turned away back. Here's Christ's obedience to the Father. His ear was open to the, the will of the Father. And he was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, Shall I not be confounded? Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. You see this? He sets his face as a flint. He sets his face steadfastly to do the will of the Father, knowing he will not be ashamed, that he will receive help. And that's, that's what's going on here in our text. This is what Christ is doing. The time has come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knows that though it will bring great suffering, he will have to give his back to the smiters, his cheeks to them that will pluck off the hair. All this fulfilled by Christ But what he is determined to do, what the Lord, his Father, had called him to do, therefore have I set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be ashamed. I know that there will be, it will be worth it all. In other words, he sees beyond the suffering to the acceptance of the Father, not being ashamed, not being afraid 
not being concerned that he failed to do what the Father called him to do, but he will ascend to heaven. His humanity will be brought into a place of glory and will be glorified. He will make way as the first fruits a new humanity. Turn also to Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel 21. Reading from verse 1. Ezekiel 21, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. Christ's going to do this, you know. As he makes his way to Jerusalem, there will be language, there will be words, there will be prophecy against the land. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return any more. Note this then, verse 6. Sigh, therefore, thou son of man. With the breaking of thy loins, and with a bitterness, sigh before their eyes. And it shall be, when they say unto thee, Wherefore sighest thou, that thou shalt answer for the tidings? Because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Behold, it cometh, and shall be brought to pass, saith the Lord God. And I wonder, I wonder if as Christ even as we'll get to in Luke 19, as Christ looked over Jerusalem there, there he was, sighing, shedding tears over Jerusalem. How oft would I have gathered thee? You would not. So Christ then has in view amidst all the suffering that is to come to pass, he has in view, and he is motivated by the prospect of his ascension to the Father because, because it's about pleasing him. It's about pleasing him. It's about entering into his presence and being there forever, having done the work that he gave him to do. That's, that's the goal. And beloved, there you have, there you have a prospect. There you have an understanding. There you have the foundation for even how the Apostle Paul himself was able to endure the sufferings that he endured. He kept it all in view of what was to come. He had eternity stamped on his eyeballs. He had an understanding of the great glory of what awaited to the faithful, to those who labor not in vain, but continue to labor for Christ. Though they face such suffering at times that's beyond what they could ever have guessed or imagined, yet they continue forward amidst the present difficulty, looking forward to an ascension, rising up into the presence of God. This is what motivated Christ. His humanity did not look at the sufferings and say, bring it on in that kind of indifferent way. There was, no doubt, naturally some kind of a struggle, though it was completely resigned to the Father's will. Without sin, a sense of the difficulty of what was before him. But as I then was looking forward, the ascension, pleasing the Father, that will help you, Christian, to live your life aright. It's not for no reason that the Scripture tells us what will happen to those who are faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of thy Lord. Is that not to motivate us? It's not just to inform us. Oh, this is what will happen. How interesting. No. <laughs> it's when you're facing hardship and difficulty 
Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Look for the well done. We know also not only Christ's determination that is motivated by the prospect of his ascension to the Father, but Christ's determination is motivated by the prospect of his salvation of sinners. Verse 56. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Well, this is moving him. This is helping him deal even with the rejection of the Samaritans at this present moment. Thank God John and James were limited in their powers. But Christ could have called fire down from heaven. He could have called a legion of angels to wipe out the entire village. It could have been like the scene that you have in Ezekiel 9. Where the angels come and then there's the one with the ink horn in his hand. And all the others are given over to wiping out the city. But Christ prefigured there setting his hand of mercy upon those that belong to him. Oh, he could have done that. Wouldn't have been for the first time. But he is motivated by the prospect of the salvation of sinners. This, this is the glory of it. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives. Listen, don't believe the lie that Jesus Christ in some way will make your life less enjoyable or in some fashion negative. He destroys fun. He destroys my will for my life. He's going to mess things up. I won't surrender to Christ because of what it means and the consequences of it. That's all a lie. Christ doesn't destroy lives. He saves them. He blesses them. He gives them purpose. He gives them a sense of fulfillment. I would not change the last 19 years if I had a million opportunities to do so. If I had a thousand lives, I would follow the same path, though hopefully more faithfully. Giving yourself for Christ, I have no desire. It never enters my mind once to think about going back to the unregenerate days, to the unregenerate life, and to all the sins that ensue. Christ does not destroy lives, he saves them. You can't help at times but look back and see the forks in the road. Even months, right, 12 months, the various forks that appeared in my life 12 months before my conversion. Any one of them going the other way, I would not be here. Who knows where I would be? No, Christ saves lives. He saves And he not just save lives that he has been doing for millennia. He will save your life. He will. He will save your life. Of course, the question tonight is, will we treat him as the Samaritans did? Will we shut the door? We will say, get out. I have no time for you. I have no interest in you. Go somewhere else. People do this all the time. Some of you... I imagine, are not saved. I guess, I don't know, but I guess some here, Lord's Day, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, do not know Christ. You have never been saved. You have no real meaningful testimony or walk with Christ. You don't know what it is to submit, to resign your will, to walk in His ways, to love the Lord with all your heart as the grace of God enables. You don't know that. We can sing hymns like what we sang tonight, and it, it doesn't mean anything to you. You've never actually, you've, you've never shed a tear. There's no gratitude. It's just emptiness. You tonight find you here empty. Spiritually empty. Time for business. Time for pleasure but no time for Christ to crucify it. So what happens? Look at it. With this we'll close. They went to another village. The Lord can pass you by. At a time 
You know not when. In a place. You know not where. There may be the ceiling of your destiny for glory or despair. And I stand here completely ignorant as to when that time will be. I don't know. I have no idea. At any moment I preach, at any time I stand before you and bring the word of God, at any time Jesus Christ can decide, I'm moving on. And you could seek him with tears and never find him. That's a frightening reality. They went to another village. He moves on. Oh, to tell that village, run after him. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But it's too late. I trust it's not too late for you. Christ came to save lives. Maybe tonight is the night you experience yourself what it is to be saved by Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed, you're before the Lord. He appoints a season for your profit. And so I urge upon you again the right response to His Word to seek the Lord, to cry out for mercy. You know where your heart is. You know what's going on in your life. You know it better than I do for sure. Christ did not come to destroy your life. He came to save it. What amazing grace. Have you thanked him? Have you thanked him for who he is and what he has done? Are you amazed? Are you amazed at grace? Believer, think back. Ponder. Ponder all the way the Lord has led you. Ponder how gracious He's been. Ponder all your backslidings and all your indifference and yet think upon this fact. He came not to destroy your life but to save it. And even now perhaps... As you find yourself in a fainting fit, cold at heart, walking afar off, cry afresh for renewal. Because this man receives sinners, he doesn't hold grudges. He receives sinners, he eats with them, and he'll come again, not to destroy your life, but to save it. Lord, help us. Help us all to see Jesus Christ in this wonderful image of his mercy, in this text that underscores the purpose for which he came. Many things transpired those years that he was upon the earth, many doctrines to be explored many truths to be considered. But the greatest truth we've ever come to learn is that Jesus loves me. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. Save the lost. Speak, O God. Speak with a voice that wakes the dead. And save precious lives. Bless our fellowship, our conversation. Make it profitable. For those that remain behind, bless the food to us. Help us to build each other up in our most holy faith. And go with us all into this week, preserving thy people in their going out and coming in. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.